Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of JCOS Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with. And today uh, we're in conversation with Debbie Juggler. Hello. Hello. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, we met last week. Uh, we had to do we had to do our meetup on uh, over online. Online. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we had our conversation. We've, we've come up with quite a, I think, quite a, a controversial topic, uh, and one that will hopefully get our listeners uh, thinking about. Um, uh, the subject that you teach, JE, and my subject, sociology, and how they uh, dovetail together on this particular issue. Um, but before we do that, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? And because I know you didn't train as a JE teacher initially, no. So you want to give us no. A little bit uh, of yeah, I mean, I um, my route into teaching was actually through history. So I, I studied economic history at university. Um, I love. I had a great history teacher when I was at school, and I just. I just loved it. I, I, I loved everything about it. Um, so I did that at university, and, and in my late teens, I was involved in a Jewish youth movement, as many Jewish teens were, you know, in, in the 90s. Um, and uh, and I, I, I loved that. I loved doing the summer camps. I loved sort of the informal education side. Um, so teaching, for me, really seemed like that natural next step. I loved history. I wanted to do something with that. I wanted to work with young people, um, and I knew that being a youth worker was never gonna, never gonna really pay the bills. So, so to go into teaching was seemed like a natural, a natural step for me. Um, and I did. I taught history. Um, my first day of teaching was actually t- September the eleventh, two thousand and one. If you can believe that. Um, so that was an interesting first day of yeah. teaching. Um, and I um, and I stayed in teaching till two thousand and nine, really. So that first stint, um, you know, became a head of department, uh, just loved, you know, I had just the love for history itself didn't really diminish. But I think, as with lots of teachers, sometimes you get a bit burnt out. The school that you're in might not be a match for where you're at with your subject and your skill set. And that's basically what happened. So I left teaching for about five years and I worked... Um, in an informal education setting in a synagogue, um, teaching people who were converting about Judaism, running sort of um, informal education events, weekends away, summer camps, um, running a a religion school on a Sunday morning, like all those different kinds of things. Um, And then then one afternoon I had a phone call from uh, Miss Robinson, who was the director of Jewish education here at the time and she was she was looking for someone for, as a maternity cover and I and I was like oh you know what I've heard about Jacos I you know can I come and have a look can I come and when I came here I was immediately struck by the ethos of the school uh, for someone who had quite a traditional Jewish upbringing um, and then had moved into reform Judaism this seemed a place where I could be religiously comfortable and teach something continue teaching which I loved but also just have a bit of a a change from teaching history um and and that I guess the and the rest is history yeah. as it were <laughs> so I, I joined as a maternity cover in 2013 and haven't I left I think it's um, it's really well, no matter who who I've uh, done a podcast with always everything that comes back to with with subjects is people's uh, their personal interest and their passion for the subject and the topics that go in it and I think that's what really comes out 
because even when you talk about uh, having a hiatus from being in the classroom, it's like it, the fundamentally it was still there, the passion for, for the subject, the yeah, passion for work. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, uh, look, you know, you hear people talk about a career as a calling. And I do feel that working with young people is a bit of a calling for me. I, um, you know, I still, I still, 20 years really of teaching, I still get a kick out of having that, that realisation, seeing that realisation on students' faces when they understand something or, or, or a behaviour or an attitude about something starts to make sense. And for me, you know, you know, the admin, the bureaucracy and all the difficult things about teaching are become insignificant when you see that response and you get that response or you have a student saying thank you. Um, and that's that's what gets me up in the morning on the 21st of July, <laughs> the yeah, last yeah. week of term. Not to date the episode, guys, but we are very tired people here. Um, I wanted to, I mean, you mentioned there, which kind of nicely segues into uh, our, um, into the episode today, you start, your first day of teaching is uh, 9-11, mm. uh, which is very apt because yeah. today we're going to talk about terrorism. Um, it's a topic within sociology, often uh, terrorism is, is used as an example to explain uh, crimes at the most severe, severe end of the scale. Um, but to kick off with, do you want to... Um, Tell us a little bit about what what's your understanding of terrorism from a JE perspective, and also what kind of role does justice play within JE and its understanding of terrorism? Right. So we um, we would define terrorism pretty much in the same way that, that that other people would. So as an unlawful act of violence, usually against innocent civilians. Um, the link between that and justice is slightly more complex because the Torah basically says that Jews should pursue justice. Now, obviously we have very different opinions on what what is just and what is fair. So that almost creates, in some senses, a grey area surrounding terrorism. Now that doesn't mean that Jews advocate for terrorist acts or Jews would support and celebrate them, but it does mean that there is some justification in some parts of society for acts that are construed by others as terrorist acts. Okay, so we would judge, we judge what we feel is a terrorist act, um, whereas others in the community might feel that that act is justified. Um, and that is where really the complexity lies with people who use religion to commit terrorist acts but believing truly that they they are acting justly I think uh, it's interesting because it, it brings up like the perceptions of of a definition and, and it's something that's come up in loads of episodes um, the idea of depending on your point of view depends on how you look at things and that's you know the, that's the embodiment of sociology depending on the perspective you take um, you talk about um, you also mentioned you know you right there and some grey areas that kind of go with it do you want to unpack that a little bit more yeah so um if we take the example of Menachem Begin we we spoke in our in our warm-up didn't yeah. we about Menachem Begin so Menachem Begin was uh prime minister of Israel um in the late 70s early 80s but his his past was a lot more complex he escaped from uh, the Siberian gulags 
um, and Nazi-occupied eastern Poland um, and made his way illegally to Palestine in the 1940s. He was head of a movement called the Irgun, um, which was a Zionist movement fighting to end the British mandate of Palestine and fighting for the creation of a Jewish state. Um, he was very much a Zionist and very much of the view that um, that Palestine was the Jewish ancestral homeland and that in a Jewish state had to be created in order to protect Jews of Europe from, well, from those current atrocities, but from anti-Semitism in general. So when he, when he arrives in Palestine illegally and he, he heads up this movement, he's doing it very much in a bid to save his people. You know, that's, that's his view. Now, the British, on the other hand, are trying to stem the tide of illegal immigration. They've, they've stopped all immigration from Europe. They are trying to please both the Arab community in Palestine and the Jewish community in Palestine, and pleasing no one in the process. Um, and so they're trying really to hold things together, and they're fighting in World War II. So they very much see Menachem Begin as a, as a threat. They um, outlaw the Irgun and, and they sort of decree it as a terrorist organisation. Um, and that, in a sense, forces the Irgun to, you know, participate in illegal acts. So uh, destroying infrastructure, cutting telegraph wires, um, you know, uh, bombing um, post offices, uh, destroying train tracks. Now that disrupts the British war effort, but it also means that the British... I guess the British, in a sense, they realise that they're not going to succeed in solving the Palestinian issue. Um, Menachem Begin it becomes a wanted man. The biggest sort of thing that he participates in is the bombing of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. The King David Hotel is one of these, you know, you've made it. If you stay at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, you've made it. You've made it in life. And the British had their army, had their military headquarters at the hotel. Um, and the Irrigan bombed that hotel. Uh, 90 people were killed. Um, and, you know, the British very much viewed him as a terrorist. When Israel becomes a state in May 1948, the, the Irrigan, they, they put down their arms and they become part of the newly formed uh, Israel Defence Force and they fight in the War of Independence. And Menachem Begin enters politics. You know, his time as a as an outlaw is over, he enters politics. And he ends up uh, becoming prime minister of the first right-wing government in Israel's history. So he's, he remains on the, on the right wing of, of Israeli society and Israeli politics, but um, I guess respectably so, and he becomes prime minister. Now, the unique thing about him as prime minister is that he becomes the first uh, Israeli leader to make peace with one of its neighbours. So he signs a peace agreement with Anwar Sadat mm -hmm. and becomes a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Peace Prize winner. It's really funny. I've, this is a question that I've got down, but my yeah. brain has pinged off and I jokingly said to you before the podcast, like, oh, beliefs in society. It's a topic that I haven't really talked for a very long time. But my brain's just pinged off and thought about how within that time period, initially during the war effort, how... Um, religion is seen as either a force for social change or a force for maintaining tradition and I guess it's a really interesting one here from the example you've explained would would religion 
be seen as a force for social change in that situation or a force for so keeping the, tradition? Yeah, so this is where we have, and I mean, this is probably a whole other podcast yeah. within itself, but this is where we have a real discrepancy between people of Menachem Begin's generation, so people who are late teens, early 20s during the Holocaust, and that older generation. And the older generation were very much of the, let's see this through, we've survived, we've survived anti-Semitism in the past, we can see this through, versus the younger generation who were very much, we need to fight this, this is not going to go away, we need to stand up and be a force for change and challenge in society. So Menachem Begin was definitely part of a generation that was a real departure from their elders. Um, interesting, really interesting. Yeah. Just like, obviously we've started the episode with talking about you know our definitions of, of terrorism, but it's, it's not without thinking about well, what are the motivations behind why, why a terrorist act can happen. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, so, um, in terms of the, there's a question I've got here, and I've written it yeah. kind of in, a, in an odd way, but what's the Torah's understanding of justice? So the Torah has a section in Leviticus that's known as the Holiness Code. And in that, uh, in that chapter, basically talks about all the things that, that Jews should do to create a just society. And there's a whole massive variety of examples. So it's um, treat the stranger in, in your land as if he was one of your own, or leave a portion of your field fa- uh, fallow for the poor to, to, to grow their food, or don't reap all of your harvest, leave it for the poor and needy. So there's lots of things like that that, that talk about justice. But then we also have this overriding uh, passage, which actually is in, a, in the book of Deuteronomy, like one of the final books, uh, the final book of the Torah, that basically says, justice, justice, you shall pursue. And it, it's almost like a standalone text, because it doesn't then, it, it, it comes in a chapter all about judges, and in a sense, it's talking about the Jewish system of law, like how is, how it, how are, how are the rabbis of the law courts, how are the judges going to adjudicate? But it's taken so much as a, this is not just, you know, the rabbis basically interpret it as not just about the judges in the law courts, but about all Jews, that they have, um, they have the need to fight injustice wherever they see it. And and Jews, you know, historically in the 20th century have done that. You know, the, there was um, something called the Religious Action Center that was set up in Washington DC in the 60s to work with Martin Luther King and the NAACP yeah. fighting for civil rights. And that wasn't a Jewish issue, it was a human rights issue. But, you know, a whole massive section of the American Jewish community felt compelled to f- to fight for the rights of others based on this teaching so it's inter- again interesting one of the things i remember us talking about as well is also is this uh, justice that shall be pursued um through efforts like study work acts of kindness mm. um it's interesting you know though Work at, we work with JCOS, I w- would argue that is demonstrating much like behaviour as well in the way that we, we are. Um, it's, I guess, where 
if I'm trying to tie back to to how we've started, is in terms of then how terrorist acts have occurred, where it gets us thinking about the motivations for terrorist attacks. And I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on what are motivations for terrorist attacks. So, from if we if we think about if we think about the two, uh, I've got two examples of of terrorist acts perpetrated by Jews that, that that we can talk about. So the first was in 1994. A man called Baruch Goldstein walks into the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron um, and proceeds to kill over over 20 Muslims at prayer on a Friday. So. Um, why did he do that? So Hebron is part of the West Bank. It's part of the, the, the occupied territory. Hebron has always been a, a place of intense uh, tension. Um, and their histori- even before the creation of Israel as a Jewish state, there were, uh, there were riots and massacres and violence between the non-Jewish community in Hebron and the Jewish community in Hebron. The tomb of the patriarchs is incredibly important for both Jews and Muslims because that is where Abraham is believed to be buried. So there, so it's considered, in Judaism, it's considered one of the four holy cities. It's considered prominent in Islam as well. And therefore, ownership of that site and of that city is, is one of the reasons why it's a major flashpoint. Baruch Goldstein um, was a, an extremist right-wing settler who believes that the West, who believed he's dead now, but believed that the West Bank should be part of a greater Israel. The the borders of Israel described in the Torah are much larger than the current political state of Israel. So there is a section within the Jewish community who believes that ultimately Jews should aspire to have, to have this enlarged state of Israel back. And Baruch Goldstein, in his knowledge in his interpretation of that committed this terrorist act it's um i think what's really good here it's made me think of a sociologist called mccoughlin and mccoughlin um talks about uh, four uh, motivations for why terrorist acts happen and the example you've just gone you've just stated there it makes me think of the fourth one which i'm about to say now so one of them is political so political motivation for terrorist acts, crimes by security or police forces as a way of committing terrorism, economic crimes have been uh, done against the citizens. But yeah. the one that's maybe jumped out here is social and cultural crimes or the perception of social and cultural crimes. And I wonder if we were to almost take a bit more of a, an umbrella approach to our understanding of terrorism now, um, when we look at acts of terrorism over the years I wonder do I wonder between us now could we think of any other examples of, of acts where we have seen um, t- terrorist atrocities based on social and cultural crimes or economic people being victims of economic um, restrictions or political politically motivated terrorism yeah I mean I think I think the Israel-Palestinian conflict is is a prime example of that. Um, you know, are the terrorist acts committed on both sides? Are they as a, are they a result of occupation? Are they uh, as a result of 
uh, religious extremist ideologies, are they as a result of um, the disproportion, you know, the levels of, of poverty and disproportionate wealth um, and perceived inequalities in society? You know, is there is there are there people behind the scenes who perhaps have um, a hardline extremist ideology? Are they manipulating? those who are victims of economic poverty into, you know, it, it, it there's makes, so much blending between all of those reasons. And I think Baruch Goldstein in particular could not separate the religion, his religious beliefs from his political sort of understanding yeah. of what was going on in Hebron and in the West Bank and in Israel at the time. And I think, I'm not sure that terrorists, you know, I'm no expert, but I'm not sure that terrorists see those things as distinctively different. I think it's all part of a parcel of it's, general injustice. It's it's um, it's making me think also, like again, not a question we've got we've we've looked at prior to the pod, but um, people being pulled into terrorist acts and the process of radicalisation or the process of uh, of simplifying a narrative to create someone to be. Recruited, uh, I think that's re- this all just starts to make McCoughlin's work look very um, apt. However, there is something that makes me go, how relevant are these four uh, McCoughlin's kind of four ideas of motivations for terrorist acts when we put a 21st century lens on it and we add in the world of social media and technology. Um, not to go down too much of a postmodernist route here, yeah, but, yeah. I, I, <laughs> but um, it makes me think of where does things like um, cyber cyber attacks, cyber terrorism fit into into this exploration that we've done so far. I'm thinking about anonymous as a particular example mm. of uh, internal what I believe is called hacktivism, internet yeah. hacktivism. But I'm sure those I'm sure those hacktivists I'm sure they truly believe that they are fighting injustice. Why are they hacking into the the Pentagon? Why are they hacking why are they choosing particular organizations to hack into? It's because they believe that in some way, shape or form they are exposing a, a crime or some sort of injustice. Um, you know, and, and yes, it is ter- it is terrorism to the point where it's causing um, it's causing terror. You know, but terror about secrets being leaked, terror about data, terror about um, past crimes that ex-military have have committed. You know, we we see that on the news about Northern Ireland and British soldiers, and are they, you know, are they, you know, should those crimes against them be pursued and things like that? Um, but ultimately, I think, you know. You know, we, we look at we look at terrorist acts. We look at 9/11, and we look at the bombing of the Manchester Arena, yeah. and we are appalled by the the horror of it all and the evil of it, and and the fact that children, you know, children die, children grow up without parents as a response of these terrorist attacks, and it is appalling, and it is, you know, lives are forever changed and damaged by that. But the terrorist doesn't see that because they see it through. It's this is the this is the only way I can fight injustice, um, 
and the, and the murder and the death and destruction is almost like a byproduct. So on that note, um, I wonder if there's a almost. I mean, this I, I, this is like a hammer thrown into the question into yeah. where we're going at the moment. But um, I wonder when we look at terrorist attacks, whether they are uh, cyber attacks, whether they are uh, terrorist attacks in the most conventional sense of the word, is there almost a perception of when we look at certain atrocities when it comes to terrorism and we put it in order of what we as a society perceive as as a oh that is more barbaric and versus ah well it's bad but who got hurt really at the end of the day yeah I mean I think there is I think um, you know do you remember where you were on 9-11 yes you know undoubtedly for, for our generation we're we're around about the same age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you made that joke. I usually make that joke all the time on the podcast. Yeah. Go on, sorry, carry on. You know, we'll remember forever yeah. where we were when we heard that and we, we watched that. You know, and just like our parents will remember where they were when they heard about Kennedy's assassination. And, you know, there'll be, um, there'll be those moments for in every generation. Um, I think that... We do, because of that, we remember the horror of it. Do... So it's interesting so, that... Yeah, so that it's you, difficult. Because you... Cause you uh, we go back to 2001, there's an example that kind of shapes you know, people in their late 30s to early 40s, their perception of, of a terrorist attack. Could you... So then Ariana Grande attacked Manchester four years ago, when there was all a number of attacks that happened in, in right in a short space of time, time. In, in the UK, yeah, um, absolutely. Does that become that becomes a kind of defining attitude of that to say people who are in their mid twenties right now? It's, I think the what's what's sad with even asking that question. It, it's also making us have to, you know, have to think about well loss of life versus motivations versus the way it happened and because this whole episode has been about definitions of terrorism and under the banner of like justice as well um it's quite a in a in a standard sound sociology podcast way rather glib ending to to how we think about how we think about terrorism and and how we um, end up I'm trying to think of the appropriate words but how we end up basically going oh do you remember this one because of this amount of people who died in it or absolutely the, it's or the, the shock the, the shock the shock and, and actually part of part of terrorism I suppose is about getting people talking about the issues mm-hmm. um, you know I would say as someone in my 20s when 9-11 happened I didn't really understand the motivations of Al-Qaeda I didn't really understand um Sort of the the issues in Afghanistan or the Middle East, you know, and that and that is someone who understood the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, understood, uh, you know, had lived in Israel, um, had experienced the first Gulf War in Israel. So, you know, I'd understood the tensions, but not to the extent that it would have caused 9/11. Um, so I think we sometimes, you know, when we when we remember something so starkly. We then start reading about it, and we then start thinking about it, and I think that's part of what terrorists want. They also they they create terror 
but they also want people advocating for them on their side. Um, and whilst 9-11 was never going to turn me into, into a, a supporter of Al-Qaeda in any way, shape or form, it did lead me to reading, well, what are their grievances? Why are they so angry that that, that is what they do? And I think that's a great point. And the, the kind of takeaway from, for our listeners, I would hope, is, is with anything, there is perspectives. There are barriers. And, and that's how we started the episode. It's understanding the perspectives that people are coming from in order to then try and get to the root of what, what's motivated the action or what motivated them to say this particular thing. And, you know, it's funny because it's also making me think of context, you know, the context of everything that's going on in that situation that has, say, made them do that action or say that thing or not say that thing. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Um, we are coming towards the back end of the podcast. Uh, last question, as I normally do. Uh, any any interesting books, films, websites that listeners could engage with, especially with the topics we've been talking about today? Okay, so um, one of the books I particularly recommend is um, it's called Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist. Um, and it's written by a guy called uh, Yossi Klein Halevi. Uh, Yossi Klein Halevi is an American Jew born and raised in uh, New York, Brooklyn, and some, you know, that part of the world, um, and basically um, becomes involved in an, ex- an extreme right-wing Jewish movement known as Kach. He moves to Israel and he undergoes a bit of a political transformation, and now he's in the, sort of the political centre-left. Um, he teaches... Um, at an institute called the Harman Institute, which is one of Israel's most progressive uh, educational institutions. Um, but he talks about the what attracts him to that movement, the vulnerability that he thinks enabled him to be recruited. Um, and it's really an insider view into why he truly believed that this movement was was the way to progress his agenda and his his worldview. So that's really, really interesting. Um, you know, he, he's written many books, but that that it's quite haunting. It's a bit scary because he's not he's not from a particularly poor you know, we imagine people yeah. attracted to that kind of lifestyle as people who are searching for something. He's not particularly searching for something, but somehow it finds him anyway, and that's what I think is quite scary about it. In a, in a, it's like a great read. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, so that I think would be my number one sort of recommendation. Um, I think just understanding if there is, I know it sounds again, it sounds a bit a bit glib and a bit reactive, but I think sometimes when there is a terrorist incident somewhere around the world, I think we need to make sure that we read up on on it. Um, just to try and understand how we've got to that point. How have we got to the point where people in Nigeria, uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria, are kidnapping girls? Why, you know, why did Malala get shot? Why do some um, settlers in the West Bank set fire to to olive groves? Like, what are the what is the purpose of these terrorist acts? Because it's not just about causing terror. And sometimes I feel we sort of oh they're just trying to scare people, and we sort of that shouldn't it, sh- it should be a conversation starter yeah not a not a thought stopper almost oh, no, that's, 
thank you so much for no thank you I've loved it um you've been listening to Jake Cos Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with we'll see you on the next episode very soon 